And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When I worked in the White House, I had the honor of meeting Gordon Brown, who was then Prime Minister of Great Britain. He was then, as he is today, a brilliant and passionate thinker about public policy. That's reflected in his newest book, Seven Ways to Change the World, How to Fix the Most Pressing Problems We Face. I sat down with Mr. Brown for a live virtual chat this week at the Institute of Politics. Here's that conversation. Prime Minister Gordon Brown, it's so good to see you again, especially at such an interesting, challenging time for the world. I'm looking forward to getting some of your wisdom. So welcome to the Axe Files. Welcome to the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. Well, we're missing your advice and wisdom that uh, you brought to bear when you were in government. So well, thank you. it's going to be good to talk about some of the issues that are going to be solved, going to be dealt with. Before we do that, though, I want to talk about you and, and your journey. It started uh, in Kirkaldi. Did I say that right? Kirkcaldy. It's Kirkcaldy, actually, and uh, it's the birthplace of Adam Smith, and it's probably best known because he was uh, such an important figure in economics. And next door is Dunferman, which is the home of Andrew Carnegie. And of course, he remains uh, well known for his uh, philanthropic activities around the world. So uh, yes. I was brought up in this, w- what is actually an, an industrial town, it, it, mining, coal mining, uh, and textiles on the periphery, if you like, of the conurbation of Edinburgh. And, uh, you know, what I saw growing up, I'm, I'm afraid, was, was a lot of poverty, a lot of unemployment. And that's what really influenced me. Presumably, uh, your folks were an influence as well. Your father, uh, Dr. John Ebenezer Brown, which is a, a wonderfully British uh, uh, name, uh, was a minister in town. Tell me about him and the influence that he had on you. Well, well clearly, um, uh, religion, Christianity, growing up as the son of a minister with two brothers in this uh, town was, was bound to have an influence on you. And, and you're talking about the 1950s and the 1960s, uh, when just like uh, America, um, Scotland was probably the most uh, religious country after America in the, in, the, in the whole world, where everybody uh, or large numbers of people went to church. So it can't not have an influence on you. And, uh, you know, my father wasn't uh, party political in the sense that he would uh, try to influence his uh, congregation with his views but but i always knew that he he was a believer in social social, social justice there was a friend of him actually that uh, every time that uh, the labor party you know the equivalent of your democrats at one he would call the hymn on the sunday now thank we all our god uh, <laughs> if the party had lost and the conservatives was, or, or, or someone won it was dear lord of father of mankind, forgive our foolish ways. <laughs> and of course, if the nationalists or some third party one, it was uh, God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. So it wasn't uh, blatant uh, uh, religious uh, propaganda coming from my father. He was always very conscious that in his congregation, there were people of so many different views. And I, I grew up aware that you had to respect all views in politics, although I felt the poverty that I saw around me, because this was a time of huge change. The mining industry was falling textile. I remember one company just a few yards from where we lived had a factory and uh, 500 people were made redundant in one week. And, and that really had an influence on me. I thought, you've got to be able to do something about this. My 
school friends were leaving to go to other parts of the country uh, and uh, there was an emigration happening because of unemployment and uh, I felt we needed to do something about it. So that's my interest in economics, but also my interest in social justice. You and your brother started a newspaper when you were a kid, and the proceeds of which went to, uh, I guess, African refugees. Is that yeah, the... It's called Freedom from Hunger. It was a campaign being run by Oxfam uh, to try to alert people to the malnutrition that was taking place in Africa. So we raised money. My brother was actually more innovative than me. He got an interview with John Glenn, your famous uh, astronaut. Ah, yes, yeah. Harold Wilson, who was the prime minister, he got an interview with uh, him. I, I, I did the mirror. I did the sports uh, commentary. I, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was really interesting because uh, you were raising money uh, for a charity and finding out about what was happening in the rest of the world. And I think a lot of uh, young people growing at that time became more aware as Britain, you know, Britain's empire was uh, collapsing. We were leaving Africa, uh, but there was huge problems of poverty and uh, and hunger, it, it, uh, and partly because of civil wars, but also because of just the sheer poverty of the places. So I became very aware that there was an international context to the poverty we were seeing. This was a through line in your in your life. I mean, one of your great achievements in public life was to persuade the U.S. and Europe uh, to join Britain in debt relief uh, for. Uh, Africa, and you're still working on issues of uh, of disease and poverty in, in, in Africa today. Yeah, and, and when I finally persuaded, Larry Summers was the Treasury Secretary at the time, mm -hmm. and uh, when we finally persuaded him, which and that was the key um, uh, person at that time to persuade, uh, it was a great uh, success. And I think we wrote off uh, as, as a world about 200 billion of debt of some of the poorest countries in, in Africa and Asia. And that made it possible for them to spend. And I think we've got evidence of that, to spend on health and education where they were spending on debt interest payments. So uh, the lessons I learned young were applied. And, and, you know, when you say to people debt relief, a banker will tell you, you know, moral hazard, moral hazard. And we started off with 80% debt relief, then 90%, then 95%. And suddenly it was 100% debt relief. And people say, you can't do that. That's just against the way the financial system works. But uh, we wrote up about 200 billion of debt. You were kind of a prodigy in school. You uh, you went to high school at 10. You went to the university at 16. I think you were the youngest student there since 1945 or something. How did that work for you? I wouldn't recommend it for everybody. It, it, it was uh, I, I was very young when I went to university. I mean, I'd, I'd done all the exams at 15 and I got there at 16. I actually ended up in hospital the first week I was at university, so I missed actually the first much of the first and second years because I'd got a, an, a, an injury playing, I uh, ask you about that, playing yeah. football and I, I lost the sight of my eye and I, I had to be in hospital for, for months as a, as a result of that. Uh, so I, I did get to university at 16. I probably started studying at 18. <laughs> well, let me ask you about that. I know you were like, you were also, you mentioned you were the sports editor of your, of your, uh, of your little newspaper while your brother was going off and getting the celebrity interview. Views, but you and you were quite an athlete, and you got kicked in the head playing rugby. Too detached, almost, almost as dangerous as American football, you know. But without uh, without the head shield, so you know, there's no protection if you're playing rugby. You're really, I thought you were saying, I thought you were saying, almost as dangerous as American politics, but uh, <laughs> both. <laughs> <laughs> but you lost the sight in one eye, and you very nearly lost the sight in your other eye. That is a incredible. You know, I struggle for that. I thank Chicago because uh, the surgeon who saved my eyesight, I, I, I walked into a hospital thinking I was about to go blind because what had happened in my first eye and I'd gone blind was happening in my second eye. And I was only um, 19, 20. 
and I, 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 I believe that there, there, there was no way to save it because they had failed three times with, the, with one eye. And then uh, a young guy who had been trained in Chicago came, had come back to Edinburgh. Uh, he was uh, of Indian uh, background, uh, a great, uh, magnificent uh, medical uh, doctor. And I was probably his first operation, and the surgeon handed it to him, and uh, he used all the new techniques that had been developed in Chicago, and uh, uh, my eyesight was saved. And, uh, and that, that was, it was just remarkable, because I, I, I really did feel I was about to lose all my sight. How does a young guy process that, and how did it affect you in the, during the rest of, of your life? Well, I stopped playing rugby. <laughs> stopped playing. Football. Seems sensible, yes. <laughs> I, I, you know, once once something that you really love, like sport, uh, you've got to be a spectator and not a participant. Once that goes, you really are thinking about what 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 are you doing as a teenager? What are you doing in your early twenties? So I, I did think it it made me realize that I had to do something different, and so I, I got more involved, obviously, in in politics. I got more involved with the Labour Party, in in, in particular. And I've been very lucky because uh, because my the, the, this retinal operation that I had has held for fifty years. So I'm, I, I've been very I've been very fortunate indeed. And I I, I talk to this uh, surgeon who's no longer young uh, every every few months, and he, he checks me out and everything else. And it, it's remarkable. But it, but he he was trained in Chicago, so you guys should be very pleased. Yeah, we we will take credit for that. Thank you. <laughs> we'll, we'll remember that. You talked about the fact that your father was uh, strategically nonpartisan in his approach other than his choice of hymns at the end of elections. But um, when did you say, you know, I I think this is what I want to do? Because you spent 10 years getting a PhD, teaching, uh, you spent some time in television news. When was it that you decided, yeah, I know you had a little campaign in there and you were the rector of your university at a very young age, but what what drew you to, to a career, to a life in politics? Well, I, I think, I think uh, as, I, as I said, once I was, you, you know, when you're recovering from an operation like a retinal detachment, you're lying blinded, in some cases for three weeks, uh, and you can't see anything. Uh, and uh, you, 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 you have to think about the world. And, and I think that's the point at which I, I, I realized that I, I, I wanted to be a university uh, teacher, and I, I did do a lot of teaching, and I, I still do some. Um, and I really enjoy uh, do, doing doing lectures and uh, tutoring. Uh, but I felt that uh, the problems that I saw around us, uh, we could do something about it. And I was particularly influenced by what what I'd seen growing up. You know, we we used to go and visit. My father and I used to visit families because there was a lot of flooding happened in the town we grew up because it was by the sea and. Uh, you saw the condition of the housing when, and, and uh, we, we were never very wealthy ourselves, but, but the, the point is you saw people in a far worse uh, position. Uh, and so you wanted to do something about it. Uh, and I think that's the influence that public service can make a difference, that politics is not a game. It's about changing things. Uh, there's no point in going into politics if it's all that you want is to be famous. Uh, the only reason, and I um, still hold to that, is to see if you can make it make make a difference and, and and politics is about hope it's about giving people hope that things can actually change and uh, if you can show it's more than optimism which is things might change i mean hope, hope means that you've got and barack obama of course used the use the term uh, audacity of hope but hope means that you, you've got a determination that things will change and i think that's what the best of politics is about 
Yeah, I, uh, I've, I've always said that politics divides into two categories, the people who run for office because they want to be something and the people who run for office because they want to do something. And that second <laughs> cohort, that second cohort is a smaller and more admirable group. Uh, of what you are one. I mean, in Britain, they talk about this distinction between polit- politicians who are bishops and politicians who are bookies, which is gamblers. And uh, I suppose there is some truth in that. You've got a message you want to get across, or you- you're actually just uh, playing playing a game. And I think uh, the most successful politicians and uh, who you worked with, Barack Obama, is one of them. I've got a message. They've got something they want to do, and they've got something they want to to get completed. Where do you think your current prime minister fits in? <laughs> the British prime minister? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if by the time uh, people see this broadcast whether you'll still be prime minister. I mean, we're we're going through prime ministers at a very fast rate. I mean, we've had uh, uh, David Cameron in 2016, Theresa May to 2019. Uh, now Boris Johnson is uh, is hanging on at, two, at 2022. So there's a bit of a turnover here. And uh, I, I mean, I think he comes on the gambling side. <laughs> Taking chances. It seems so. Yeah, it looks like his his uh, luck may have run out here. But uh, let's talk about your own journey to that office. You became you had run an unsuccessful race for uh, uh, for parliament, and then you you ran another one and you won. And you came there as a Labour member at a most disadvantageous time, in that it was the height of the Margaret Thatcher era. In yeah. Britain, and labor was flat on its back. What were your thoughts when you arrived to this debacle? Well, th- th- this was the, the Nadia, because I'd stood in 1979 in, uh, in Edinburgh, where I'd been uh, a student, uh, and uh, I, didn't, I didn't win, obviously, uh, and labor did badly. And I stood in my home area in 1983 and won, and labor did even worse. Uh, and people said of that campaign, it started badly and it fell away because it was so bad. <laughs> and people talked about our manifesto being the longest suicide note in history. And what, had actually, what had actually happened was that our policies had become different and did not reflect anymore our values. So we had all these policies about nationalization of this, about uh, getting rid of uh, you know, our defense uh, forces and everything else. And it no longer reflected the reason that people were Labour were, if you like, on the left in politics in the first place. Uh, they didn't uh, prove to be the best way of advancing social justice or liberty or freedom uh, or even full employment. So we had to rethink completely. So I came in in 1983 and uh, Labour had a new leader, Neil Kinnock, um, uh, which I, I helped elect. And uh, Tony Blair and I were, were both, uh, we actually shared an office. And, uh, yes. For, for many years, uh, and we realized that if the Labour Party didn't change, if it didn't modernize, uh, then the Labour Party was never going to be able to survive. So we made it our business. I came from this very industrial seat um, uh, in, in Scotland, so I was very aware that while people were loyal to, 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 to Labour, they were not happy with Labour. And of course, in England, which was, of course, more um, uh, traditionally conservative than, than, than Labour, uh, people had walked away in droves. So we had to rebuild and realize that unless we could have policies that reflected our values, uh, and this is the challenge for every party in politics, because the changing environment always requires you to rethink your policies. You've got to reappraise them every generation. But unless they reflected our values, we couldn't persuade people to stay with Labour. So we had this huge process, very difficult, uh, very controversial. You know, some of our Labour people, when we came to America to talk to some of your uh, people, they thought that was uh, that was selling out. It was, you know, as if we were, the Democrats are so right-wing. And that's what they said. And they said, no, we've got to listen to 
uh, all the parties uh, that, are, that are trying to do progressive change. Well, Democrats during that era went through their own transition after a couple of disastrous elections. What, what lessons do you draw from that experience to today? Because labor is trying to rebuild from some very tough losses. And uh, you see progressive party, I mean, Democratic Party has its own challenges here, even though it is the party in power. What are the lessons that you carry from that experience to what you see today? And what advice would you give progressive parties? Well, David, at an intellectual level, and you've been through this uh, with the campaigns that you've uh, run, you've got to reconcile your policies for economic progress with your policies for social justice. You can't have economic progress at the expense of social justice, but you're not going to get social justice unless you have policies for economic efficiency and economic progress. And that was really the challenge of the 80s and the 90s, and that led to Bill Clinton's uh, policies uh, at the end of the uh, at the end of the 1980s and, and him winning the, the, the presidency of America. Now, I think we've got an even uh, more challenging uh, environment because almost every political party of the left has been... Uh, Posing the policies that they pose in terms of the nation state. And, and, and we've almost been oblivious to the fact that we've got a global economy. It's an open global economy. It's got to be managed better. And so most of the democratic, uh, social democratic parties or progressive parties you'll see in Europe are finding it really difficult to come to terms with the fact that all the levers they said that they would be able to pull previously, you just cannot pull. You're dealing with an international environment. You've got to have... Uh, Uh, coordinated policies with other uh, uh, countries uh, if you're going to make things happen. And we've seen that during the pandemic. We know exactly that's the problem on climate change, that one country can't solve that problem alone. And I think social democratic parties have found it very difficult to face up to this. And uh, I think progressive parties across the world have got to have policies for this new era, which is global, uh, and you've got to manage globalization. It's no use saying, you know, it's here, and so just accept it. You've got to manage it. Otherwise, uh, you get all the results that we've now got, which is massive inequality, of course. Uh, we've got protectionism now arising because people don't see that globalizations work. The 2008 financial crisis was a real problem because people could see the system wasn't working. They weren't getting the benefits themselves. Uh, and, and, and people then were persuaded by people like Trump that the answer was to retreat into the nation state. But of course, it's never going to be the answer in a world where you're going to need greater cooperation if you're going to solve some of these uh, problems. You know, we had to deal with the breakdown of the banking system. And that was not just the American banking system. That was the global banking system. And it could only be solved by finding a way that we could collaborate globally to get the system back up up and running. And I think possibly we saw that more clearly from Europe uh, than was seen in America, where I think you saw it as an American problem uh, more than as a global problem. Uh, But now I think we've got to realize that all these problems we face, the pandemic's obvious, climate change's obvious, Financial instability is obvious, um, global inequality. Uh, These are problems that need a a level of cooperation that is not um, against the national interest. It's a level of cooperation that is the only way that you can express the national interest and deliver on it. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You know, it's it's so interesting that the example you read, you you uh, I remember, and we I think first met uh, 
back in the era of the financial crisis when President Obama came to office. And uh, the two of you were closely in leading the world to uh, solutions uh, to that to prevent a a second Great Depression. But um, there was a terrible backlash uh, in that period because there was a feeling that the bankers had led the world over the cliff and that people were suffering. They were escaping uh, with their bonuses, with their benefits, while others were struggling. Uh, And in a way, this triumph of global cooperation also had as part of it a backlash that has really helped fuel uh, populism. Is is there anything that, that oh, could have... David, we didn't go far enough. Uh, perhaps we didn't right. have... Right, that's what I want to ask. ...sufficiently intensive cooperation. You see, I wanted um, a financial transactions uh, levy uh, because I didn't see why the public should pay the costs of financial crises that were caused by the people who were making a huge amount of money in the financial system. Now, I could not persuade America to do this. Actually, we persuaded France and Germany, and it's still the policy of the European Union to have such a, a levy. So in a, in a strange sort of way, while the banks were really uh, in, in trouble, uh, and we nationalized uh, to, to three of the banks in, in Britain, possibly doing more than, than you did. Yeah. Uh, but, but at the same time, we, we didn't uh, create the, the mechanisms by which the public could see that the financial system was not going to get out of control in future and the old practices were not going to come back. And one of the things we wanted was this financial transaction tax. And I'm afraid we didn't get it. And then I think one of the reasons why President Biden has done a very strong uh, and fiscally active uh, intervention to get out of this particular crisis is that there was probably not enough fiscal intervention in 2009 and 10. And uh, when we left office, uh, the mood in Europe changed almost entirely uh, to being, you know, cutting down the deficits and cutting down the debt, an era of austerity. And that meant that Europe barely grew over the last 10 years. Yeah, I mean, the, the growth rate of Europe and Britain has been very low. Uh, and that's because they, they, they didn't have the fiscal push that was necessary and relied entirely on monetary policy. And I think you did better in the States, but I think we all could have done better. And we would have shown, I think, if we'd done these things in the, in the next two or three years, that world um, uh, economic cooperation worked, that you could manage globalization and we could manage trade to prevent protectionism. But instead, what you've seen is gradually you've got the trade barriers going up. You've got the immigration controls, which is another form of protectionism, of course, which is necessary and it's got to be managed, but, it, but also it's a... It's, it's, it's a reflection of people's demand for protectionism. And then you went to Donald Trump's America first. And you've got China first. You've got India first. You've got uh, well, uh, Brexit. Russia first. And, and to some extent, Brexit shows uh, an attempt to put Britain first. And for some of these countries, it's first and only. And so uh, the nation is seen as the sole source of, um, of any economic initiative. And international cooperation is relegated, even although... It's obvious when you've got pollution, it can't be solved by one country. It's obvious when you've got a pandemic, you've got to work together. And yet that lesson has not really been sufficiently um, realized in, in what people are doing in the last year. Yeah, and this is, a, this is an important point. It's not, it's not just a moral uh, obligation to see to it, for example, that people around the world are vaccinated. It's very much about self-interest as we see these, uh, these new variants popping up in Africa and other places where there's a high degree of, uh, uh, of of unvaccinated people, and that's where these variants breed. 
You see, David, as you know, a politician will never get elected if he's not a, or she is not a patriot, if they're not seen to be standing up for the national interest. And that's absolutely right. And I, uh, you know, feel uh, strongly, uh, I'm Scottish and British, I mean, we're, 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 we're very uh, patriotic, but uh, you've got to show that your patriotism uh, can be reflected in international cooperation. And it's not, there's not a choice between being patriotic and cooperating with other countries. It's a reflection of your patriotism that you can find a way to work with other countries in your own national interest. And we seem to have failed to get that message across. And certainly under President Trump, America sent out a completely different image of itself to the rest, rest of the world. You know, I, um, and, and, and then that encourages the reaction to globalization. You know, if you are now retreating into a national silo, then you don't really think that global uh, um, economic activity and global cooperation can actually work. You know, I, I was at an IMF uh, meeting when I was chairing it as a, as, a, as a finance minister, and there was a big demonstration outside, and there was a banner that said, Worldwide Campaign Against Globalization. <laughs> you know, and you know what people meant, because they were fed up. Uh, and the politicians weren't always uh, serious. I, I remember, I just say this because I think it sums up some of the, the problems in politics about taking these um, international issues seriously. When the, the financial crisis broke in 2009, we had a meeting with uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, the president of France, Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, the head of the European Union, the central bank, Berlusconi, the, um, the, the prime minister of Italy. And, and it was the weekend that really the Lehman Brothers had collapsed. People did not know quite what to do. America, I think Ben Bernanke said later, 18 banks might have gone under. And, and, and we, we met for an hour. We were talking about all the problems and how we could solve them. And, you know, I had this idea that we had to, uh, we really had to invest in the banks if necessary to nationalize them so that they had enough capital. They had to be recapitalized. Anyway, we broke for, broke for coffee. And suddenly we had Berlusconi uh, saying in his, uh, his, in, in his pigeon French, he, he said, amateurs, he said, amateurs, he said, c'est sont amateurs, they're all amateurs. And we're thinking, we are all the amateurs. Berlusconi, the businessman, he's got the answer. And he said, don't they realize we've got a press conference in an hour and there's no makeup artist for any of them. <laughs> and uh, that was the seriousness with, which, with the biggest financial crisis we'd seen in our lifetimes. But where I was going was, I mean, what you hear from voters, from the public, what you heard then and what reverberates even now is just that somehow the bankers got away with it. And there were bankers who were responsible for this, who never paid a price that they never, you know, uh, and I know this is more a Old Testament concept than a New Testament concept, but they wanted people to pay uh, for their for their misdeeds. And they wanted to see people uh, uh, tried and 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 prosecuted for it. And David, if I'm honest, I think a lot of the problems have moved from the banking system to the shadow banking system. So mm -hmm. while we were tough on some of the regulation that we imposed on the formal banking system, we were not tough on the shadow banking system, which are, which are lots of different organizations that operate as if they are banks, but are not subject to banking regulation. And we've seen a lot of scandals emerge over the last year or two. And I think we will have to look at the rules governing the shadow banking system as well in future. But, but clearly, um, the public did not see that they were benefiting from global change. Uh, and because China was, uh, in, in a sense, becoming the manufacturing uh, capital of the world, where it used to be America and Europe, uh, and because they were paying a lot lower wages, then, of course, the pressure on manufacturing workers, factory workers, 
and then on all the workers who were relatively low-skilled low um, has become intense. And, and you can see that that is one of the reasons why populist movements have grown up in America, but also right across Europe. And I think people sometimes forget that although uh, there's very few governments other than the Hungarian government, for example, that are, that are nationalist, uh, or the Polish government, very nationalist and uh, anti-immigrant and everything else, uh, that nationalist movements are having some effect in almost every part of Europe. The Scandinavian politics have changed. Belgium is always in danger of breaking up. Catalonia and Spain, Scotland and the United Kingdom. And these nationalist movements, Le Pen in France, uh, they, 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 they become strong. And, uh, you know, Steve Bannon from the States has been going around Europe. Uh, yes. You know, if you like, to get a, an international coalition of anti-internationalists, if you like. But that's what he's yes. trying to do. No, that's, no, he fashions himself a historic figure in that regard. Yeah, and, we and, in America, by the way, are happy to lend him to you uh, for as long as you'd like to have him. It's the one immigrant I would not like to come to Europe. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's one, one of, it, it, but it is a problem uh, where you have these populists. So, 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 so you've got protectionism now, um, trade protectionism, obviously. You've got great big power competition rising, China and America, Russia and America, Russia and the West, of course, uh, with, uh, with what's happening in, in Ukraine. And you've got these populist nationalist movements. There's about 50 secessionist movements in, in different parts of the world now wanting to break up the existing order of nation states. And I think people are very slow to wake up to the fact that nationalism is now the dominant ideology of our age. You know, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I would have said maybe neoliberalism, uh, it was an economic ideology, Washington consensus, whatever you called it. I think nationalism is now the, the biggest political force uh, of our times. And even President Biden, uh, you know, I think uh, he left Afghanistan, didn't, didn't really consult the 40 allies that America had in Afghanistan. Uh, and, 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 and some of the policies that I think people are pursuing are, are, are too protectionist and too nationalistic and too chauvinistic. And I think we've got to fight it. Do you think that it was a mistake for him to, to leave Afghanistan? Not to leave, but I think the way it was done, I think he himself would be honest enough to admit that this was not done, done, done well. And we're dealing with uh, really huge humanitarian problems in Afghanistan that we will pay a price for later if we don't do something about it. You know, there are 23 million people who are said to be without uh, food in Afghanistan, and even the international appeals to get money on humanitarian grounds that would go through UNICEF and uh, NGOs rather than through the Afghan government. Uh, th these are not uh, being responded to in the way that they should. We still are, we went into Afghanistan and we said we were there to help the people of Afghanistan, and you can't just abandon them uh, completely and leave uh, them to effectively starve, which is what's going to happen this, this winter if we don't take action. You've said that you thought it may be the biggest humanitarian crisis we've seen in many, many years. In numbers, yes, because uh, five million children face death. Uh, and, you know, any one child who's in danger and difficulty, there's not a parent in America that wouldn't feel that something had to be done to help uh, a child in such distress, emaciated, uh, you know, no hospital care because health centers have been uh, closed. We really have a responsibility to do something about it, not to give legitimacy to the Taliban, but to actually get humanitarian aid, aid in. We, we did this with Zimbabwe when we were uh, fighting the regime, but at the same time, we didn't want people to starve. And I think it's possible to do this with Afghanistan. You mentioned Scotland, where you live, and, and uh, you have a deep, deep interest and, and, uh, and, and, and commitment to uh, Scotland. There was a referendum, and you played a role as a former prime minister in this uh, for independence in 2016. You you were uh, 
uh, was it 2016? I, I don't know. 14, you, 14, yeah. And that was narrowly defeated, 55-45. Polling now suggests a much closer division uh, in Scotland uh, over this. And uh, some would say, looking at these numbers, that if there were uh, such a vote today, that it might be for independence. In keeping with your notion of nationalism as a growing force, um, what are the what are the prospects of uh, keeping uh, Britain together, and what happens if there's uh, another uh, vote in Scotland as as the as uh, as the Scottish National Party would like? Yeah, at the moment it looks as if you might not win this, and and certainly the the, the government uh, of the United Kingdom is very very unpopular, and the Prime Minister is very unpopular in Scotland. Uh, but you've got to win this as an argument, and, and the argument is not really being put at the moment. I mean, nationalism arises where you've got allegations of cultural discrimination or economic exploitation or political exclusion. Uh, and I think uh, the nationalists want to persuade the Scots that they're in that uh, position. I think we've got to show that cooperation, solidarity, empathy, sharing, uh, these are very important principles in, in modern politics. And, and, and you can't have two nations sitting side by side with each other uh, without some form of cooperation that works. And unfortunately, the Nationalist Party want to take uh, Scotland out of every British institution. It's not a federal state they're proposing. It's not uh, some form of autonomy within uh, a United Kingdom. They want a complete break uh, with England. And of course, so much of our economy is integrated, but also... You know, half half Scots are relatives in England. So you've got to persuade people that in the modern world, uh, cooperation, solidarity, empathy are necessary if you're going to if you're going to run a modern society and economy. So that that's what the issue is. It's easy to say, you know, Scots are a minority. Look, I, I was prime minister. I was a Scot, proud to be a Scot. Five million Scots, but sixty-five million population of Britain. It's very unusual for someone. Uh, from 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 a small country uh, in, in the United Kingdom to be the prime minister, and I can understand that people in England, you know, are the majority. But you've got to find a way that people can actually find find to work together, and that's what's missing at the moment. That neither is the government of the United Kingdom proposing how we could cooperate better in the future, uh, nor are the nationalists prepared to abandon a policy which is for complete separation, which means that even on policies like uh, the environment. Uh, you wouldn't have the degree of cooperation that's necessary. You know, the vaccination in Britain has been a UK-wide vaccination. It's not been a Scottish or English or Welsh uh, effort. It's been a whole UK effort administered in the different countries. And that's the sort of lesson that I learned, that uh, if you're dealing with a major crisis, you've got to find a basis on which you can actually cooperate. And that that's really the argument that's going to have to be fought out. I don't want to let you uh, off the hook here because uh, I know you, you'd rather talk about these policies, and we should, uh, but uh, I do want to follow the thread of your own progress and get back to that office that you shared with Tony Blair and the things that you, uh, that you did together because uh, you, you were very much uh, uh, aligned, uh, and then you became a force within the Labour Party. He was a force within the Labour Party. You became almost a co-prime minister when you were chancellor of the Exchequer. You handled all of the economic policy, all of the domestic policy. Um, and uh, and there was tension between the two of you. It is a hard thing. I remember when, when, I remember when uh, Ronald Reagan was talking about adding Gerald Ford to his ticket as vice president, and it was described as a co-prime presidency and nobody could figure out how that would work 
and it didn't it it felt like as just as a matter of personal relationships it didn't work all that well it it worked effectively in terms of public policy not so much with your personal relationships back in that period i'll see tony probably uh, next week when i'm when i'm in london but but um look we worked together for 25 years but but obviously you come to your political views from different perspectives i mean you know i i came from a highly industrialized um mining community um that was uh, you know very concerned about issues of uh, so, so social justice and i was always trying to reconcile that with the needs of economic efficiency and economic uh, uh, progress perhaps tony came from a different perspective uh, and 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 obviously we had disagreements i mean i didn't want for example tuition fees to be charged uh, I, i i i wanted a graduate tax uh, i didn't want to commercialize or privatize whatever you call it parts of the national health service i thought we could work within that uh, service while using private uh, contractors where necessary but uh, so there were disagreements on on pol- pol- policy issues but look if 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 you work together with someone for 25 years uh, and you're still working together uh, and, until the day tony left as prime, prime minister then uh, you know i think that uh, shows that we had so much in common that we you know we introduced a national minimum wage in in, in britain we 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 doubled the expenditure on health and education mm-hmm. so on and so forth we introduced nursery education and uh, you know we introduced uh, civil civil rights for for gay people and everything else so we we did a whole series of changes together and uh, tony deserves credit for for for, for many of them uh, that 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 were his personal initiative and, and perhaps i deserve some credit for some of them that were mine well no question about that including fiscal discipline and restraint and and doing these progressive things within the context of uh policies that people saw as uh fiscally uh responsible our slogan at one point was prudence for a purpose that we we had to get the debt in britain down britain was really you know if you think of britain in the they used to say about britain of the 1950s that uh, uh we, we were managing decline and then they said in the 60s we were mission managing decline and then they said in the 70s we were declining to manage and britain had a huge inflation problem and it was every time there was growth there was massive inflation and you had to raise interest rates and the economy was then in recession and so we wanted to create a more stable economic environment as the platform for for investing in our public services and and re- relieving people from poverty uh, and that's what we tried to do so it was prudence for a purpose mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know we 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 fought the election in 2001 on ho- hospitals and schools first that that we wanted to create the economic environment in which social progress was possible now obviously the the financial crisis was it was a real problem for us but even throughout the financial crisis we managed to maintain uh the expenditures on 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 people in need and and uh, we kept unemployment far lower than it, than it was in America i mean i don't think unemployment went beyond about 7% in britain whereas it went beyond 10% in europe and america so we always had in mind that the purpose of our politics was was to deliver a more just um society and 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 to be honest we did not do enough and no government has done enough about inequality and uh we are still waiting for the sort of action that is necessary i think to deal with some of the worst excesses of inequality in our communities i will just say parenthetically that uh one aid of one or you uh, yours or blairs was quoted as saying that uh, they felt like the uh children of a dysfunctional relationship so <laughs> well, but you know bono used to call us uh, john and paul you know <laughs> like john lennon <laughs> and paul mccartney look we worked together for 25 years but you know in politics that 
everybody comes with their own uh, uh, views and their own background and their own ideas that they want to implement. I probably wanted to do more on the on the social policy side, but you know, we, we had to work it out and we did for 25 years. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. So let me ask you a question about one decision that was made, and this wasn't on the in your portfolio, but uh, the decision to uh, follow a President Bush's lead in Iraq. It was a deeply unpopular decision, ultimately, in Britain. As you look back at that, how important was that decision in terms of how people viewed Blair and Labour in the later years of your partnership? Well, I think we lost the 2010 election for a number of reasons because of the austerity and the, and the crash. But I think Iraq was very important. We'd been losing votes um, in 2005 and 2010. Uh, so I, I think public opinion did turn against uh, the, the, the decision. I was given. How do you look back at that decision? Well, it was it was a mistake. Um, I, I'm no, I'm in no doubt that you cannot justify the intervention in Iraq as a just war on all the moral criteria that are put forward because we could have done more to avo- avoid it, and there were other options uh, a, a, available. I think um, the, the problem was the information that we had was flawed, and there's no doubt about it that I was given information. And people told me they knew exactly where these weapons that um, Saddam Hussein had were. They could pinpoint the street, if you like, or the place or the the area. And I was given all that in, in information, uh, and it proved to be wrong. Uh, and I think America was basing its information on uh, exiles from Iraq who were giving uh, a, fo- a false picture. Now, the question is, who knew what? I certainly did not know uh, that he had uh, none of the weapons that were um, alleged. Uh, and I had to go on the information that, that, that I had at that time. Subsequently, I've seen documents that show that some people knew, but, uh, but, but I certainly didn't know. Uh, but when you, when you look at that um, intervention and you look at w- what constitutes a just war, uh, I, I think you've, you've, you've got to be honest that um, uh, there were other options available. Do you feel you were intentionally misled? I don't know who knew. Uh, you know, there are documents that come up, have come out of the State Department in America showing that some officials doubted uh, whether they were giving the information about, uh, about weapons and doubted whether that information that was being passed to them was accurate. Uh, but I never saw a British document saying, you know, this is all inaccurate, this is not true, this is, cannot be true. Uh, but I think uh, we learn lessons from this, that, that you really have got to base your decisions on, on, on accurate information and you've got to test it, test it to the limits. The problem is, as you know, some people wanted the war anyway, irrespective of whether you had weapons of mass destruction or weapons that were, um, uh, that were um, lethal in the way that was, uh, was, was alleged. Uh, and, and, and some of us were prepared to listen to the evidence and, of course, wanted to work through the United Nations, which was always the aim of... Uh, uh, the policy, but uh, at least uh, from Britain's point of view, but it never quite worked out. So you, you learn lessons all the time. And one of the lessons that you learn from both Afghanistan and Iraq, and, and of course the Afghanistan uh, intervention was justified and, and can be justified uh, as, mm-hmm. as an essential means of uh, defeating terrorism, but you learn how difficult it is uh, to state build or to um, 
uh, to, to go into a country and, and, and suggest that you can some, somehow rebuild a society from outside, uh, you, you've, got, you've got to be far more humble about what your uh, ability to do that is. And I think that's what we've learned in Afghanistan, that nation building or state building, because it was really only state building, didn't actually work. Uh, and that the country was not uh, ready, um, partly because of its uh, economic conditions, partly because of its uh, medieval systems of government, partly because of the tribal loyalties, um, and that form of state building, uh, or which was called nation building, has got to be. You've got to be very modest and humble about what what can be achieved. But but that doesn't relieve you of a responsibility for humanitarian support. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Afghanistan would have been different in any way had there not been the distraction of Iraq? I think Afghanistan was subject to a whole series of different mission statements, so to speak. You know, we went in to defeat the Taliban. The Taliban were defeated and moved out of office, but we stayed in Afghanistan. And then a number of objectives were set forward. We could make it a a more um, democratic society. We could get rid of the heroin trade. We could uh, build local government. Uh, We could create a central government that was effective. Uh, we could build schools, we could build hospitals. And I think uh, we weren't absolutely clear, and I'm talking about the whole coalition of 40 countries, that having defeated the Taliban, what actually was it possible uh, to achieve? And of course, in the end, uh, you've got to recognize that, uh, that the support that we had expected from, from local people ended up uh, not being there uh, as, as the Taliban moved in in the last year. There's a you know, major crisis in the world today relative to Ukraine and Russia's intentions toward Ukraine. That has broad implications for NATO, for Europe. How do you assess the threat and what should NATO be doing now? I think, uh, David, you've got to come back to where we are as as a world community now. I mean, we had a unipolar age. America was completely dominant. And America generally, not with Iraq, of course, but generally acted multilaterally in a unipolar age. Now, the problem has been under President Trump, and there is still a legacy. America is still acting unilaterally in a multipolar age. So America no longer wants to be the world's policeman, but it's got to be the world's leading problem solver. So America's got to be the leader of multilateral action. Now, I think that's been missing in the analysis of where American foreign policy should, should move over, over, over future years. And you know, over Afghanistan, as I said, there was very little contact with the members of the 40 members of the coalition when, when you left Afghanistan. Now on Ukraine, perhaps belatedly, there's a great deal more cooperation. And so the issue is, how can you make the, the strength that comes from the cooperation you can build internationally, with America obviously the leader, uh, and, and, and as I say, the problem solver, how can you actually make that, make that work? Now, Putin's at his time of greatest power because he's got the oil price rising, he's got an energy shortage, he's got big reserves, he's far more self-sufficient than he was a few years ago. Uh, and my uh, meetings with Putin have always convinced me that you've got to show strength. You, you cannot show any weakness. Uh, he's an opportunist. You know he wants to control Ukraine, but he's an opportunist and will only do what he thinks he can get away with. Uh, and you've got to show strength. You know, we had um, Litvinenko was, uh, was, was, was a Russian who was killed on the streets of London, as you yes. know, assassination. I knew, I knew that Putin was behind this. I knew also he was planning further assassinations. 
So we had to show strength. And the only way I think we stopped there being further assassinations, the guard uh, dropped actually a few years later, uh, was making sure that both we protected those people who were in difficulty, but equally at the same time, the message went out that we were going to take the toughest possible action. And you know that strength is what has got to be shown here. And that's why I think pulling together the coalition uh, that America is now, is now doing is really important. Uh, and I think uh, the economic sanctions which are being proposed have got to be very tough. And you've got to bring, bring Europe together because there are, there are obviously the people who are going to suffer most from the imposition of sanctions are not America. It's going to be European countries. Uh, and they've got to be brought on board so that they are aware that uh, while there may be some suffering, they've got support from their, all their allies. We've got to find oil and gas from other parts of the world if necessary. But we can't allow ourselves to be completely at the mercy of um, Russian energy uh, in, 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 in Central and, um, and Western Europe. You know, I, I listen to you talk about uh, what's needed in the world. And, um, and it makes me think about um, how, where we've traveled from the, uh, the World War II when in reaction to the disorder of the world, uh, we created all of these global institutions, America being uh, uh, at the center of many of them. Uh, and, uh, and now we see a retreat. We see a weakening of these global institutions. We saw under, under, under Trump uh, a retreat from NATO. Um, wh- what are the, what are the, are we going through a transition here? Can these institutions be reinvigorated? I feel listening to you talk like you are uh, holding a candle up here in a gale force wind. I, I think we can rebuild the institutions. Look, I was just looking the other day at the end of the Bretton Woods Conference in America, New Hampshire, where you decided uh, with American leadership to create the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and a new system of economic cooperation and the American Treasury Secretary at the time and I just took this out because I thought we might be discussing this, we have come to recognize that the wisest and most effective way to protect our national interests is through international cooperation. Now, mm-hmm. how many people believe that today? And that's why I say nationalism has become the dominant ideology of the age, that people feel that the, if you like, a narrow definition of the pursuit of national interests, even at the expense of international cooperation, is the best way to present yourself uh, to, the, to, the, to the world. And so we, the World Trade Organization is, has become ineffective. Uh, the uh, cooperation on getting the vaccination to the rest of the world, I mean, this is a moral failure of huge uh, proportions. I mean, you know, America and Britain, 70% vaccinated, Africa, 7%. You know, and we've got the vaccines. We're producing 1.2 billion a month. We could get them to Africa, but there's not been the money and there's not been the the pressure uh, sufficiently strong so that we actually suffer because the the, va- the virus comes back in a new form. Yes, yes. this is where Omicron uh, was born. And it's, yes. it's, it's the same thing with Afghanistan. Terrorism will come back uh, because uh, all these groups will be saying to people in Afghanistan, now, look, we told you, these people, uh, coexistence is impossible. They're never going to help you now. Uh, they were only doing it for themselves. They're not interested in you as a person or your lives or your mm-hmm. hunger. And, and, and then, of course, you get mass migration, which is going to be a huge issue. You're going to see far more migration from Africa to Europe than uh, from any country to America. You know, and so a- Africa, with its uh, doubling of population, uh, is, is going to become a huge source of migratory pressures. Uh, and again, uh, from Afghanistan, people are migrating. They become an issue in, in the rest of Europe. And so enlightened self-interest would, would make you cooperate. Now, there's the moral issue about solidarity with people who are in need and uh, a duty of care and compassion 
Uh, but there's the enlightened self-interest that comes from avoiding terrorism, about dealing with migration, about preventing, for example, from Afghanistan, the heroin uh, trade coming back into all the streets of our, our, our cities. And so I would like to, to, to make the argument that, you know, in the 1940s, we managed to cooperate in even more difficult circumstances and form new institutions. But look what's happened now. We could act on smallpox in the 1960s with, a, with a, a, an international levy that we agreed to do together, but we couldn't agree on uh, sharing the burden for, for dealing with uh, COVID. On climate change, we only got so far at, at Glasgow uh, but this issue that nationally determined contributions is, you know, every nation is free to set its own uh, limits uh, and extent of what it does. And there's no sense that we're all coming together to create one point of pressure to get the, to get the climate, to, to get the carbon numbers down. And so when you look at all these areas, and then I look at nuclear proliferation, this is something that I think America has really got to take on board because it looks to me as if Iran is going to get a nuclear weapon if we can't to get an agreement very soon. But then I, I, I do say Saudi Arabia... Saudis will, will follow, yeah. Mm -hmm. Then you'll have uh, UAE, then you'll have Turkey, then you'll have Egypt, and then you might even go into Africa and Nigeria. All these countries will think that the only way that they can be a power in the world is by having their own nuclear weapon. And, and, and so the, the deal that President Obama done may not have been perfect, but it it, it, we're not able to rebuild it because Iran is so clear to so so near to getting a nuclear weapon. Now that's where nuclear non-proliferation talks are necessary, and that's where I think President Biden's got the right ideas. And during his election campaign, he put forward these ideas about you know banning your, your testing, uh, enriching of mm -hmm. uranium, banning that, no first use, no sole use uh, if, if necessary. And I think he could have built and is in a position to build global support for that. But at the moment. It looks as if Iran is going to start off a new a wave of proliferation. And whereas President Kennedy stopped the proliferation in the 1960s, um, we are starting to look as if we're going to have a new wave, maybe another five countries becoming nuclear weapons powers, if we don't get the level of international cooperation that I'm talking about. Just very briefly, because I, I do want to finish on a, a couple of personal notes, which may give you an incentive not to be brief. I don't know. <laughs> but China, I know you've been concerned about the sort of bellicose rhetoric going back and forth between uh, the U.S. and others in China. What is the proper approach to China, given this sort of muscularity of Xi and 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 his? I, I, I think uh, I think the approach is the one that was set out by Jake Sullivan and by the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, and Biden, Joe Biden himself, and that is cooperation where possible, uh, but, uh, but uh, confrontation where it becomes necessary. Um, and I do think that we should be trying to find areas of cooperation. Otherwise, we will definitely move to something like one world, two systems, if we don't actually find a basis on which we can work together on certain uh, key, key issues. We tried on climate change, not entirely successful, because President Xi didn't turn up at the at the mm -hmm. com a conference, uh, I think we should try on, on obviously, weaponry is, is absolutely critical, particularly when artificial intelligence is now being used and it's very unpredictable what, what might happen unless mm -hmm. you sail -face, fail fail-safe mechanisms. And I think, obviously, we should, be, we should have been do doing more despite all the difficulties on, glo on global health where we clearly have uh, an, an interest. And, and the rising powers like China and India they're going to have to pay some of the shares of these global public goods. This is not a free lunch for, 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 for these countries. Uh, but I think uh, 
we are in the direction of one world, two systems. And that means yeah. a separate trade organization, a separate... Which it runs completely counter to your prescription for what's, what's needed. Absolutely. So here's what I wanted to ask you about two things that happened in your life. One, one I, I read about, which was the night before your, uh, your father died, he called you. And you were, you were, I guess, chancellor at the time. Yep. And you were deeply enmeshed in, in some issue and you didn't have time to chat. And I cut short the call because I was so busy thinking about something I had to do the next day. And the next morning he just collapsed and died. And it's something I, I will always regret. And wh what did it tell you about, you're, you're a very driven person, uh, obviously. Did it, did it cause you to say, you know what, I've got to reorder things a little here. I've got to think differently. Yeah, and, and that, when, when, when my daughter died, uh, that, that also made me think that, uh, you know, family is really important. Um, uh, you, 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 you can't, I mean, the, the, these things that really they touch you and you, you, you feel that the time you give to your children is, is really, really important. And the time you give to some, some good causes to try and help people in, in difficulty, as you, as you and your wife are doing, it, it is very important too. So I, I think it, it does bring home to you that there is something more to, to, to life than work. Uh, but it also drives you on to do some of the things that you think are important that you, you, my father or uh, you know, my, my family you know, really believes in. You mentioned your daughter, uh, Jennifer. She lived just 11 days. And uh, you and your wife, Sarah, have, uh, have committed yourself to the issue of infant mortality, prenatal care, and so on. Tell me about that. I think it's fascinating the advances that are now being made because people are now putting money into research that might otherwise not be done. So, I mean, infant mortality is still very high, of course, in some of the poorest countries, but it's unnaturally, I think, high in some of the advanced countries mm -hmm. as well. Including the U.S. Yeah, and we've realized we can do a lot of things. I mean, um, I, mean I was uh, talking about blindness the other day, uh, and uh, we know that the levels of oxygen that a premature baby get affects whether that child is blind or not. So you don't, you're not born blind. It's, it's, it's the level of oxygen if you are a premature baby that you have to get. And if it's too big, it's too high. And if it's too low, it affects your ability to, to see. And that's one of the things that I think is changing. Uh, but also, I think uh, we found that you can operate as, as surgeons within the womb to, to avoid certain conditions uh, becoming obvious when a child is born or making it difficult for that child to survive. So there's a huge number of medical advances, just as in the area where you and your wife are working epilepsy and equally in areas where we now are looking at, uh, uh, as a result of the virus, uh, conditions like long COVID. I mean, we are going to see, as we've seen with vaccinations, massive, massive medical uh, expertise being brought to bear. And uh, we really have to support it as a global public good, as well as just uh, what's happening in any individual hospital or in any individual um, uh, country. Uh, the scope for people to live longer and live better uh, is being enhanced every year by the medical advances, but perhaps we're not uh, funding medicine, medicine and healthcare sufficiently for everybody to have the chance to benefit. So that's one of the things that really, um, I've been working with the World Health Organization over the last few months because uh, they, they, they need, as does Gavi, the vaccination fund, the Global Health Fund, they're all short of money. They're all running out of money. And, and people have got to realize that if you want these global public goods and control of infection, control of infection is one of the biggest global public goods, uh, you've, got to, you've got to invest in it. And we're not doing enough to do so. Well, let me say as we go that though your daughter didn't live 
along the advances that have been made because of your advocacy and your wife's advocacy will have saved lives and have saved lives, I'm sure. And that's a tremendous legacy for Jennifer. I hope. But, um, you know, I, I, one, one of the inspirations for us is actually the work that you and your wife have done on epilepsy. And I don't want Thank you. just exchange c- congratulations because that's not what we're about. But I, but I think, uh, you, you know, your effort to, to, to deal with investment in, in, in cures, but also treatments for, for a disease that probably has been underinvested in is, is something that I, I really do admire. And it's not just had an effect in America, it's had an effect right across the world. So, Thank you. Well, I, it, it, is, it is a way of, as you know, it is a way of transforming grief and anger into action that might help people. And um, I applaud my wife, Susan, for the great work she's done. Happy to help her and so happy to be with you, Prime Minister. It's it's great to see you always. And uh, thank you for your continued voice in the world. You are perhaps more than a candle. You're incandescent. And uh, it's important, the spotlight you're shining on on all of these issues. So thank you for that. And thank you for being with me today. Well, working with you and some great Americans has been one of the joys of my life. And uh, we, we continue, I hope, to, to have a very strong relationship across the Atlantic to be able to, to deal with these common challenges. So it's, it's a pleasure both to have worked with you in the past when you were in government, but uh, also to do this interview today. Thank you. Here, here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.